Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. Happy Monday. This is an extraordinary Monday. Not only will Donald Trump lose the presidential election again, it is kind of the Groundhog Day that Trump loses again and again and again. Well, he's going to lose officially when all 538 electors vote, and they're gathering all around the country to cast those votes. And he will lose by, what, what is the count? I think uh, 306 to 232. Also, uh, today is the day when it is very likely that uh, we will hit 300,000 deaths from the coronavirus pandemic, which is an extraordinary uh, landmark. But also, this comes on the day when the the vaccine is being widely distributed and we're, we're starting to see the first people being vaccinated. So we have the good news and the bad news. And we want to talk about uh, all of this with our special guest, uh, Kim Whaley, uh, who joins us, who is a not only a constitutional scholar, but also has written a book, Everything You Need to Know About Voting. So um, this is your moment, isn't it, Kim? I mean, voting, constitution, all of that stuff. Great. Yes, all this stuff that was boring for most of my career is now sexy for <laughs> for, for dubious reasons. Uh, it'd be nice if, if if basic constitutional separation of powers and voting rights were not uh, hanging on by a thread. Um, we can have another pod when when this is in our rearview mirror. I hope, but I'm not so sure anytime soon. You, you could almost, if you want to look on the bright side, this has been like a crash course in civics and constitutional law and and voting rights, just all of the details that are that are happening here. So before we do this, I just want to remind uh, listeners, again, we are very, very grateful that you listen to our podcast and, and read the articles on The Bulwark. Uh, over the last several days, uh, we've made our newsletters free. So you, you get a sense of what the Bulwark Plus subscribers um, are are seeing. It, it's more like a membership partnership uh, because this podcast and, and the main website are going to remain free. But we do have a Bulwark Plus where and we're very, very grateful for all of the support to keep this fight going on. And if you sign up for Bulwark Plus, you you are not only will be getting uh, every one of our morning sh- my morning shots newsletter, JVL's triad newsletter. Uh, we're developing some other newsletters I'll tell you about in, in, in a few days, as well as a number of podcasts. So if you have not yet uh, subscribed to Bulwark Plus, uh, please at least consider it. Okay, so Kim, this is a really an extraordinary day. I don't think that Many Americans have ever actually followed the casting of the electoral votes, which has really been a pro forma thing right up until today. But now people are sort of hanging on it. You know, at what point will Donald Trump um, officially lose the election? Will Joe Biden get 270 electoral votes? My best guess is something around, what, five o'clock tonight that, you know, when when California or some state casts its vote. But today's the today's the official official date. Isn't it? I mean, it's like right under the Electoral Count Act. Today is the day that the electors meet um, to, and it's pro forma, as you indicate, to to cast their slate for president. And remember, um, what they do today is dictated by the law of their particular state. The state legislatures have passed laws directing electors what they're supposed to do today. And part of the nonsense we've been hearing in terms of Donald Trump's efforts to steal the election from Joe Biden have been phone calls to some of these legislatures to try to get them to change the law that governs what the electors are going to do today. So, so far that hasn't happened. So this is an important day. This is in terms of protecting democracy and the legitimacy of elections, period, getting past this day without uh, serious shenanigans is is a good thing for democracy. So, you know, we'll, we can breathe easier in the morning. 
it, it, it's a good thing for democracy, but also an indication of the world we live in right now, that uh, they've had to shut down the Michigan State Capitol for the vote because there have been so many threats. And there is this sort of just cloud of violence and menace that's hanging over this vote. And we can talk about this a little bit later, but, but what's happening in Michigan has got to be a little chilling, particularly after a weekend where you've had uh, spasms of violence from uh, Washington, D.C. to Washington State. Yeah, I mean, remember, um, the governor of Michigan had a, uh, you know, a defuncted or debunked uh, kidnapping plot against her. This has been going on for a while. And I I think it's no, um, it's no surprise or to many people that this comes from uh, the very top of the echelons of uh, the American system of government that is from the White House in stoking violence. And if you read uh, experts. There's a great book called um, "How Democracies Die." Um, you know, two two experts. I think at Harvard. Uh, you know, stoking violence from from the position of power is one way that democracies have traditionally slipped into something other than democracies. And and I mean, it's good that Donald Trump is on his way out the door again. Good for democracy itself. But we've seen so much destruction. I mean, you know, the the house is smashed and dis- and in tatters. Um, it's going to need a lot of restructuring and rebuilding under a Biden administration going forward. We're not out of the woods. And I think the fact that we're tolerating this, I mean, you mentioned other parts. I live right outside of Washington and and there are four people stabbed in the hospital uh, due to violence around Proud Boys challenging um, the legitimacy of this election. These are scary times and we can't just shrug them off, even even under Biden. No, and and, and under normal, any under normal circumstances, I was going to say under circumstances that are even remotely normal, today would be the end. Of course, it would have been over long before today. Uh, yesterday, a rather extraordinary interview with Chris Wallace from Fox News and Steve Scalise, who is uh, one of the top Republicans in the House of Representatives, who was asked uh, whether or not at least today, I mean, after today, Republicans would take the opportunity to acknowledge that Joe Biden is the president-elect. And let's play some of this because it was it, it's rather extraordinary. Because one of the stories here, I think the most disturbing story, and we've talked about this before, is not the fact that Donald Trump is a narcissistic uh, authoritarian. I mean, the, we, we, we've known all of this. The real gut punch has been the way that Republicans have not only gone along with him, uh, the fact that 126 Members of the House of Representatives, nearly two thirds of the House conference signed on to the this bogus bullshit lawsuit that the Supreme Court drop kicked on on Friday night. I mean, the ind- indication of how far they're willing to go. And there's a lot of uh, speculation. I don't think it's speculation. I think it's a certainty at this point that you're going to have a floor challenge to these legitimately cast electoral votes on January 6th, when joint, uh, you know, joint session of Congress normally in a pro forma way reads the results of the election and certifies the, the election of the president. But here's Steve Scalise on with Chris Wallace, who is, who's putting his feet to the fire a bit. Uh, the president elect in those four states, do you feel comfortable throwing out millions of votes of your fellow Americans? Well, nobody wants any votes thrown out, Chris. And in fact, that the 70 plus million votes uh, that are also at stake for President Trump. Well, no, if you look at the Texas lawsuit, what it was saying is there are some states that didn't follow the laws that were on their books. The the Constitution is very clear that it's state legislatures that set the process for for having electors. Some secretary of state changed those rules. the, the The Supreme Court threw that out. They didn't well, even the Supreme hear Court it. said they, they weren't going to take the case. Uh, they said uh, Texas didn't have standing. 
They said Texas didn't have standing. They didn't say they were going to address the merits. Look, the Supreme Court, I think a lot of people know, didn't want to be anywhere near this court. They don't like getting in the middle of disputes between other branches of government. And, and that's just something they've done for, uh, throughout history. So, so bottom line, even though the electors to, on tomorrow are more than 270 of them are going to say that, that Joe Biden is the next president of the United States, you're not willing to recognize him as the president-elect and you're not willing to stop contesting this election. Well, hold on, Chris. First of all, Joe Biden has been going through a transition that even President Trump supported while he's also following what the court allows. There are legal challenges allowed. Nobody said back during Bush v. Gore uh, prior to the Supreme Court finally resolving it. And, and ultimately, there, there was an you know, electors met. There was a swearing in. Nobody disputed that. Maybe some on the Democrat side. But you didn't see people ask prior to that. Uh, to pass judgment uh, before it was fully resolved. Let the legal process play out. But if you want to restore trust by millions of people who are still very frustrated and angry about what happened, uh, that's why you've got to have this whole system play out. There will be a president sworn in on January 20th. Uh, but let's let this legal process play itself out. So, Kim Willie, the legal process has played out. I mean, there was an article in The Washington Post over the weekend talking about the near unanimity across the nation's judiciary. At least 86 judges, ranging from judges serving at the lowest levels of state court systems to members of the U.S. Supreme Court, rejected at least one post-election lawsuit filed by Trump or his supporters across the board. They haven't won cases at the state level, at the federal trial court level, at the appellate court level, at the U.S. Supreme Court level, which has told them twice to get off their lawn. And yet here's Steve Scalise saying, well, we have to let the legal process play out. Well, yeah. it, it, it's, it's played out, hasn't it? Yes. And listening to that, where he sounds like he knows what he's talking about and throws out words like standing. And, uh, you know, as a law professor that teaches law students how to bring cases and what's what kind of basic things need to be in a complaint to get past go. I mean, I, I literally just get a lump in my throat because there's so much inf misinformation in that statement. I did a piece that yesterday came out in Politico yeah. um, arguing that, you know, there are rules in place to actually sanction or penalize lawyers um, for bringing these kinds of garbage lawsuits. I mean, you cannot just file anything in a court. Uh, courts are, have limited jurisdiction. They have, they're busy. They should be uh, pre preserved for people that have valid claims. The two basic things you need are, one, a law, a law that you allege is violated. That's been missing. And two, some facts, some good faith facts. Those That's missing too. I mean, Rudy Giuliani, you know, waving around in the Michigan legislature, uh, a binder full of affidavits, none of which he's willing to put in before court because the court could sanction him for, for that, for putting forth something that he hasn't actually validated prior to filing it in, in the court. And let me just put a pin in this. This does not take a lawyer to understand what these members of Congress in 18 states, you know, did and they failed. Um, they are basically arguing to to change our system of government itself. We are government by we the people. We mm. are government, you know, by people voting and choosing their own electors. Why? Because the framers did not want an unlimited monarch any anymore. That case that he says should have gone forward, and people are now saying it was unfair that the Supreme Court didn't take this case. Essentially, is saying throw out the votes based on technicalities for four states and then direct that legislatures just hand the, the electoral college uh, slates to Donald Trump. That's not a democracy. That is something else. That is having politicians 
entrench themselves in power and decide who stays in power. That's stunning. And if they want to do that, they need to try to get enough states to vote for a constitutional convention and actually scrap the constitution itself. It's that outrageous. People need to understand it. And I think people are actually understanding it. And and and, I, and I've cited uh, Andrew McCarthy, who writes for National Review, has been very, very sort of Trump adjacent for the last few years. He did an interesting piece about one of the Wisconsin cases. This was the federal lawsuit. And uh, it was decided over the weekend by a Trump appointed federal judge who just slam dunked them. And basically what, what this federal judge, you know, was hearing the Wisconsin challenge did was he invited Trump's lawyers to submit evidence of fraud. You know, okay, if you have evidence, give it to me. They had none. So he invited them. Okay. Are you the legal merits? They, they really had none. Um, the, here's, here's, a, here's a great line from, from McCarthy's piece is there, there was no there there. Despite telling the country for weeks that this was the most rigged election in history, the campaign did not think it was worth calling a single witness, despite having the opportunity of hearing of a hearing before a Trump appointee who was willing to give the campaign ample opportunity to prove its case. The campaign said, basically, never mind. So this has been remarkable. Now, listen, one of the things that I think is really extraordinary about this has been the the division this has exposed on the right among the judges. Uh, David French has a piece in Time magazine where you know he talks about the, the Supreme Court unanimously reject, and they did unanimously reject the Texas challenge, right? I mean, I don't know. Right. You, right. Yeah. I mean, no, no judge said- annoying, I think, frankly, annoying little you know comments no. by, um, by Alito and Thomas. It was totally unnecessary, but yeah. Because it's getting misunderstood, but yes, absolutely rejected it as they had to. They had no choice. Yeah, exactly. And 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 French argues with the single act, the Supreme Court dramatically exposed a fascinating division within the conservative movement. Time and again, elected officials supported quixotic and frivolous judicial challenges to the outcome, like Ted Cruz, for example, or remained silent. At the same time, the conservative legal movement—you can disagree with them on many points especially its members of the judicial branch, crushed Trump's fever dream of an improbable second term. So the difference that you're seeing here, the people who believe that conservative judges are supposed to hand conservatives wins versus this conservative judiciary who's I maybe disappointed or shocked some people by saying, yeah, but we're going to uphold the law. We are not going to put partisan advantage or your desire to remain in power above what the Constitution actually says. Because this is kind of a remarkable moment where you have judges all across the ideological spectrum telling telling Donald Trump to pound sand. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's going to be a kind of a good moment. It, it is. It, and there's one branch that is standing. And I mean, I do worry that without some kind of sanctions or pushbacks or accountability for that, we're going to see more gamesmanship and abusing the court system for political reasons. But it's not getting anywhere. I mean, there is you know, the example I give my students is you have to have a law that bans certain behavior. And if you prove stuff, you get you get something. So you might have someone give you stink eye on the subway and that really offends you, but you can't go to court and sue. There's no anti Stink eye law. Likewise, there's no law that gives states the ability to cancel other states' votes yes. because you don't like how they did it. I mean, that the, the Supreme Court cannot make that stuff up. That is called judicial activism, and it is supremely uh, 
conservative to say, don't use the courts to achieve ends that you could not achieve politically. And even the Supreme Court dismissing on standing grounds, I know that Scalise used that word. Justice, and I, I tweeted about this, I did a huge deep dive scholarly article back in 2008 on standing. Standing doctrine is Justice Scalia's baby in part again, to keep judges out of the business of doing the work of politicians. Uh, and that's what these judges are saying. Listen, we are not politicians. We call balls and strikes based on law, based on facts. There's no law. There's no facts. Go away. Well, this is also a fundamental issue of states' rights, which is that Texas cannot tell Wisconsin which votes to count any more than I think people would want New York to tell Alabama um, or Texas uh, who, who, who to vote. So this was a fundamental issue of states' rights. It is interesting, and this goes back to this Wisconsin federal case. The you know One of the arguments has been that you're hearing from Trump world, and I want you to clarify this, is that is that it's solely up to the legislature to determine the manner by which electors are chosen. And the judge in the Wisconsin case said, yes, the manner, which means popular vote, doesn't mean the means. And we're getting into the weeds here, which is that the the details about how votes are cast, those technical administrative details, um, do, do not re all require statutory approval. That's why you have elections commissions, secretaries of state, other people who administer ele uh, elections who can make discretionary choices without necessarily legislature's approval. And so he found on the, on that distinction that the Trump folks were trying to make, he said, there's no legal merit. There's nothing that, the, that, that any of these officials in Wisconsin have done that violate uh, the Constitution in any way whatsoever on the merits. Right. We are going to see this again, though, Charlie. I, I know this is something that probably Congress needs to step in and clarify. There is an argument that, um, and I think there are probably people in the Supreme Court that that agree with it, that that election laws can only be passed by the legislature, that that, that sort of power baton can't be handed off. Now, if that were the case at the federal level, there would be no such thing as a cabinet and agencies because agencies do stuff that are called regulations all the time. Um, that is technically the power of Congress. But there are a couple other problems with this. One is timing. Uh, you know, if you don't like how a state law is being implemented, the time generally to challenge that is prior to an election. And I did a piece last week in The Atlantic that that sort of looks at election law and says most of the time when challenges to election laws come up, it's pre-election. And usually it's about it's by voters that are that want to get to the polls. Uh, so a state right. passes a law, makes it harder. Voters sue and say this is a violation of the Constitution because I want greater access. There's no serious precedent for after the fact, after an election, coming in saying, you know what, way back when, when you tweaked the law, that was unfair to me in another state and my voters. So we're going to, after the fact, cancel out votes to make my remedy, to, to make me whole. Again, the remedy has to be tailored to whatever the right is. Generally, that would be giving access to the polls. There is no way of saying, listen, Texas voter, you think it's unfair what happened in Pennsylvania. So to make things fair for you in Texas, let's cancel 7 million votes in in Pennsylvania. It, it, it's a complete uh, logical disconnect, which is why it's going nowhere, which is why, though, I think some damage has been done. There's oh, so yeah. much misinformation now, and we're going to see more of these silly lawsuits uh, that hurt 
the integrity of the electoral process and damage the courts, in my view. Well, I also re- remind me to bring this up because also I, I think there's going to be more of a legislative attempt to make it harder to vote. That that uh, a lot of Republican legislatures are going to use this as a pretext to make it tougher to vote. Well, you know, it, it, I was really struck by Scalia saying we're not trying to throw out any votes when, in fact, that's literally what they were trying to do. Um, let me tell you how it played. Let me tell you a story about Wisconsin, how, how this played out. Because I think this is kind of an educational civics civics lesson. So there's a prominent businessman in Wisconsin named uh, Douglas Haberman, uh, Hagerman, um, who wrote a piece for the local newspaper about his experience. And he's just furious about what the Trump campaign is trying to do with his vote. So he lives in Milwaukee and he votes in the election by absentee ballot. He, he tells the story. So on September 2nd, he applies for his absentee ballot by email to the city of Milwaukee Elections Commission, receives a reply the next day confirming the application was received. His photo ID is on file with the commission. He received his ballot by mail. So he fills it out. His wife witnesses it. He personally deposits it in a city ballot drop box on October 7th. Those drop boxes were authorized by the Wisconsin Election Commission, which was created by the Republican legislature and approved by Scott Walker. So then he goes back and he checks his vote on mygov.wigov, the Wisconsin Election Commission website. It shows that his ballot was received on October 8th, and it's fine. And he says, so now the Trump campaign now, weeks after the election, is asking the courts to throw out his vote because they seek this post-election ruling that drop boxes should not have been approved by the commission. So here's a Wisconsin voter who did everything that he was told to do, followed all the rules set up by the commission. And what the what Trump is basically saying to the court is, weeks after the fact, we could have challenged this before the election, but weeks after the fact, we want you to disenfranchise all of those votes, invalidate the votes already cast. And, and you can see how, how mad he is here. He says, here is Trump's repugnant sleight of hand. He would turn a legal ballot into an illegal ballot after the voting is finished. He hopes the courts will flip the election to the candidate who got fewer Wisconsin votes. So here's a guy who is going, this is my vote. I did everything right. And they're trying to disenfranchise me. And this is a scandal that I don't think we can let go of. Yeah, I mean that's the case. Frankly, I would take as a lawyer uh, the one when his his vote gets d- disenfranchised, he g- gets canceled, mm-hmm. and then you walk in and say it's a violation of his due process, or you know, there it's he, the, the government's a stop from doing that because he reasonably relied on all the pr- procedures and did it properly. And let's not forget all the down ballot uh, races. Are, I mean, the Republicans, you know, Trump's party did pretty well um, at the federal level anyway in the House and in the Senate. Uh, so a ballot is a ballot is a ballot. So are we saying? that we have to redo the election down ballot. I mean, there's sort of the hypocrisy of saying, no, just the presidential one is the one that was somehow tainted by these drop boxes. Uh, that's, I think, lost in, in the mess of, the, of, of logic. But, but logic is, is, is a lot to ask for these days, Charlie. You know? it, it, is, it, is, it is a lot to ask for. Okay, speaking of, of things to ask for, so uh, Stephen Miller, who is the uh, Trump White House homunculus, who's been giving all the advice about uh, immigration, is on... He's on Fox and Friends this morning, and he's trying to spin the fact that, uh, yeah, just simply because Donald Trump is going to officially lose the election today doesn't mean he's lost the election. Let's play the soundbite from Stephen Miller from Fox News this morning. What would stop that? Great to be on this morning. Thank you for having me. The only date in the Constitution is January 20th. 
So we have more than enough time to right the wrong of this fraudulent election result and certify Donald Trump as the winner of the election. As we speak today, an alternate slate of electors in the contested states is going to vote, and we're going to send those results up to Congress. This will ensure that all of our legal remedies remain open. That means that if we win these cases in the courts, that we can direct that the alternate slate of electors be certified. The state legislatures in Georgia, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania can do the same. And likewise, Congress has that opportunity as well to do the right thing. If you just cured three simple constitutional defects, Donald Trump's the winner of this election. Whether it's the signature matching in Georgia that was illegally changed as a result of the consent decree without the legislature's approval, or whether it's the hundreds of thousands of improperly cast ballots in Wisconsin, absentee voters who never actually submitted the request for an absentee ballot, or whether you're talking in Pennsylvania, the clear equal protection violation when Democrat ballots were cured in advance of Election Day and Republican ballots weren't. These are just three of hundreds of violations that we've documented, and those three violations alone make Donald Trump the winner of the 2020 election. (laughs) Right, and we know that... All right, Kim Whaley, where do you start with this? So the, the 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 only date that counts, he says, is January twentieth. So because that's the only one in the Constitution. So none of the laws actually count. None of the statutes. Yeah, none yeah of the we've congressional. had an electoral count act for a few hundred years, right? Yeah, no, yeah. I guess we pick and choose what's a law and what's not a law. Um, so alternative electors being elected today. So there's like a shadow electoral college vote, according to Stephen Miller. Well, I mean, there have been disputed elections in that they, you know, a state can't decide on a particular slate of electors. That's why these certifications have been absolutely crucial. Uh, because on January sixth, if you read the statute, which is kind of a mess, it's not very clear. But on January sixth, when when the House votes, the only time, ta- the only way that I can see that things could go off the rails for Joe Biden is if a particular state did not certify for one one candidate or the other. But at this point, we don't have that ambiguity. So, so you know, he's just he's just wrong. And unfortunately, uh, Stephen Miller says this stuff and, and people believe it. And I just want to put a, a pin in one other thing, this concept of fraud that gets thrown around. Fraud, Charlie, is, is a crime um, under federal law. You know, electoral fraud can put you in jail for five years, which is why people don't do it. It's not worth it in one election. It means literally lying and and victimizing someone. So pretending you're a, a, a dead voter and voting as a dead voter or pretending that you are someone else and voting in their stead. That is not the same as what he's saying, sign- signatures, this or that, or drop boxes, this or that. These are technicalities. They have nothing to do with actually duping uh, the, the American public and your state into casting an illegal ballot that is is you're not legitimately authorized to cast that is a it, fundamental distinction it is a fundamental distinction but it's one that they're trying to fudge because for example during the the argument on saturday before the wisconsin supreme court the judge the 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 trump lawyer was asked well do you have any examples of fraud they didn't have any but he says but all of these votes are illegal now what he's trying to say is that even a vote leaving aside fraud the way you just described it, it doesn't have to have any dishonesty. If there's a technical mistake, 
by anyone involved in the process, that becomes an illegal vote. So voters who listen to what they were told by their, their city clerk or, or listen to the guidance of the Wisconsin Election Commission, those votes become illegal, which in the minds of, I think, of a lot of lay people, because obviously this is not working mm-hmm. with judges at any level, um, illegal vote sounds like fraudulent vote, which obviously it's not. Hey, by the way. Right. That's for the next. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, that's my stink eye in the subway example. There is no law that says if you find a technicality in, in a process, somehow you get to cancel votes. That does not exist. There's no law. Now, if they want that, they can get legislatures to pass that law, but it, courts can't make that up. There is no there there. So going back to your point that you'd made a little bit earlier, which which I think which I think is underrated. I think you made a great point that you had all kinds of other votes on, you know, uh, other other races on the ballot that and, and no congressman has, uh, you know, uh, has said, hey, I don't think I should take my seat because uh, I think that this was 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 rigged. Well, as we know, uh, early voting is starting today in Georgia for the senatorial runoff. Kelly Leffler, who, of course, is like all in with Trump in, in attacking the governor and attacking the secretary of state, uh, both Republicans in Georgia saying that the election was rigged. She was also on Fox this morning and they asked her a question. Well, if that election was rigged, what about yours? And l- listen to her uh, quote unquote answer. Uh, we've heard from the president who said that the election was stolen from him, that it was rigged in November. So for the people of Georgia who are thinking about early voting, what can you say to them? They've heard the election was rigged in November. So why vote now? Well, Steve, great question, because we've built a robust organization to make sure that every legal vote is counted and every illegal vote is thrown out. So what's different now than it was in November where it's no longer rigged? Yeah. So we're in the courts right now asking for better signature verification processes, a bipartisan verification to have consistent verification county to county, as well as the addition of 4000 poll watchers. We also have a statewide organization getting out the vote. 1000 workers going across the state backed by 40,000 volunteers. If we vote, we will win. If we don't vote, we will lose the country. We are the firewall to socialism. And you saw in my debate last week, I'm running against the most radically liberal candidate that has ever run for the Senate. Uh, He's someone that would defund the police. He refused to renounce socialism. We have to push back against this radical agenda of the left. And it's up to Georgia voters to do that. Senator, yeah, I grew up in South Carolina and I... Yeah, so not much of an answer, is there? I mean, this is is the problem that she's got, that if you're saying it's rigged, it's, you know, it's terrible, then why bother to vote? Right. I mean, and this is also just uh, as an aside, you know, she's great at memorizing talking points, but Mm -hmm. not so terrific at pivoting or, you know, sort of uh, thinking on her feet, so to speak. And I think we that's a moment where she just didn't know what to answer. So she went back to her Mm -hmm. uh, to her basic talking points, which, you know, doesn't seem to matter, unfortunately, to the Trumpian constituency. Again, logic, rationality. I mean, they hear fraud, they hear socialism, they hear they hear whatever they hear. And um, and as you indicated at the top of the show, it's whipping people up into a violent froth. And that's, that's you know, really disturbing. And I frankly think every member of Congress who signed on to that brief uh, in Texas has no business being in politics because they represent the people, not, not the powerful uh, under our constitution in theory. And this is just, um, this is, this is just a nightmare. Yeah. See, this is no longer though, this is no longer a legal challenge. There's, 
there's there's no legitimate legal uh, route for Trump to overturn this election. They have no evidence of fraud. They have no evidence of of significant irregularities. There's no law that is going to allow the federal courts to throw out tens of millions of votes. So this is all about something else, right? It's all about fan service for the right-wing base. It's all about raising money, as much money as possible, right? It's all about delegitimizing the Biden administration may be launching Donald Trump's 2024 campaign. So this is all at this point simply political. The legal aspect of this is gone. And I think you're going to see this kind of nakedly on January 6th, where having lost every single lawsuit, and there's, there's zero prospect that they're going to score any points in, in the courts, is that it's going to be simply a Democrat-Republican up or down vote in the House and the Senate. And I, and I wonder, and this with a sinking feeling, whether or not this is going to be seen as, a, uh, as another loyalty test, that if you're a congressman and you do not vote, to throw out, you know, my vote in Wisconsin or millions of votes in Pennsylvania, that somehow you're cuck, somehow you're not willing to fight. Somehow, if you're not willing to undermine democracy, then then somehow you're being weak. And and, and that's and that's a political statement, but it also creates a precedent for the future, as you pointed out. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the, one of the questions is, and I'm not a political analyst, but how much power Donald Trump will retain over the Republican Party as a private citizen. Uh, and obviously, it looks like, you know, a number of people in the Republican caucus are, are, are concerned that they'll lose their power if they lose his favor, even when he's out of office technically. The other thing is, you know, whoever's a candidate in 2020 for the Republican Party, I wouldn't be surprised if if they're going to campaign on the fraudulent 2020 yeah. election. Yep. And too, that yeah. is, I know that in your newsletter today, you yeah. quoted at length from Hannah Arendt, the famous mm -hmm. uh, scholar on totalitarianism. I mean, that is a, that's a nonpartisan problem for America. I mean, people don't understand what a privilege it is that we live in a legitimate democracy where elections are 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 adhered to and are respected. And this destruction, I mean, you know, Vladimir Putin, Putin has got to be having the ticker tape parade of his life right now. I mean, th this is the, the degrading the legitimacy of elections takes the power away from the people. And that's where I feel like the abdication of responsibility um, is happening amongst yeah, the Republicans. And it feels we've been prepped for this. You know, we, we keep destroying one norm after another and people go, oh, that's OK. I didn't care about that norm. I didn't care about that norm. Uh, well, we elected him to blow things up. That That's OK. So one norm after another has been thrown away and you, you pay the price for it when you now get to this, the ultimate norm, which is the peaceful transfer of power and, and recognizing the legitimacy of a democratic election. But also the the way we become inured to lies and bullshit and untruths that we're at a moment now where there are millions of Americans that are going, I don't know what the truth is, but I'm going to choose to believe X. I'm going to buy into this conspiracy theory. Or if I hear somebody on Fox or Newsmax or OAN, you know, say this was stolen, um, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to go with it. So not, not, not only do you have this attack on, on, con, on the Constitution and democratic norms, but how do you have a democracy if we don't live in a shared reality of facts and truth? Right. And I mean, maybe this is my my sort of therapy from having done d lived in this space now for a few years, but I've been watching on PBS a series called something like The Dictator's Playbook and oh. watched a piece on Fran Francisco Franco and a piece on Mussolini. Uh, you know, this sort of 
sort of confusion of fact from fiction is, is again, straight out of the playbook. And when that happens, people can't tell truth from reality. The only reality, the only truth becomes the dictator's truth. What the dictator tells you to believe, that becomes true. And then, of course, at the same time, you're stowing so much chaos that people are the people are scared. Uh, people, they, they want to have... S- some path forward, right? And uh, and so they'll they'll believe what they hear be, to sort of address this this fear, and the fear is real because there is chaos. Um, I, you know, it's it's amazing, Charlie. I'm not a historian, but sometimes I wish I, if I'd go back to Cornell, I might might done a double major, right? Um, uh, history repeats itself, and we do need to pay attention to these issues. We need to pay attention to history, um, because I, I I don't want this to fall apart in my lifetime for my own kids. No, I, 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 I as, as you know. I'm a, I'm a big Hannah Arendt fan, but in part because it's so shocking to me to go back and read her books on the origins of totalitarianism and and read how that mindset works and go, holy crap, that, that is what's happening to us right now. So let me quote for our listeners what I quoted uh, from Arendt in my newsletter this morning. In an ever-changing, incomprehensible world, the masses had reached the point where they would at the same time believe everything and nothing think that everything was possible and nothing was true. So what she understood was the end game was that the lies are named to getting people to believe what the propagandist is saying. The point was to induce chronic disbelief, this indifferent shrug, who knows what to believe, who cares, what's truth. And then the final quote is, the result of a consistent and total substitution of lie for factual truth is not that the lie will now be accepted as truth and truth be defamed as a lie, but that sense by which we take our bearings in the world and the category of truth versus falsehood is among the mental means to this end is being destroyed. In other words, the whole point is not to get you to believe A or B or support. It's basically to no longer even trust your your your, your brain to process what is true and false. That's the annihilation of, of truth. And I think that that's that's the real danger. And I think that if you have a Venn diagram of people who, uh, you know, are buying into election trutherism, that's going to look a lot like the Venn diagram of people who buy into vaccine trutherism, because you don't know who to trust, you don't know what to believe, and at a certain point, you don't really care that much. Well, I mean, you just trust your own. I mean, it's called gaslighting now. That's yeah. what our that's in our common parlance, which is this idea that, you know, listen, the sun is up, and then someone's convincing you that no, it's pitch black outside, and then it's wait a minute, am I am I crazy? Yeah, I, I must I must be crazy. I, yeah, it is pitch black outside, and and that's what's happening on a massive scale. It's boils down to some sort of psychological elements, but uh, but I, I want to you know if I was more I, courageous, I would know that it was was black outside. If right. you were and, courageous, we're willing to say it. Yeah, there's a famous experiment. Actually, my next book is um, it's called it's tentatively t- titled Common Sense, also with Harper, probably come out next summer, hopefully. Mm. But it, it sort of brings sort of legal analytical uh, theories to bear on everyday decision making because I think education and and sort of uh, th- that that's can arm ourselves with some sense of agency, so we don't have to fall prey to this, but there's this famous experiment that, that um, I think it was in the sixties, a subject was shown three lines. And so, and it was clear which was the shortest line. And so the subject was told what came in said, yes, that's the shortest line. Then there were, you know, a handful of others that, that were in on the experiment. The subjects put back in the same room and the, everybody else in the room picks a different line as the shorter line. They go back to the original subject and he says, yeah, 
that is, I, that's the short. <laughs> he picks the one that everyone else misidentified on purpose. And of course, this is the gaslighting phenomenon. I must be crazy. I can't look at what's in front of my face. I don't want to be the one odd man out. So I'll pick the long line as, as the short line, even though I know in my mind, the short line is the short line. And that happens over and over and over again. And, and this is where we are. Yeah. And I think we understand that even better these days. Okay. So let's talk about Newt Gingrich for the moment, for just a moment. Mm -hmm. uh, he tweeted out uh, yesterday, why is Georgia Secretary of State Raffensperger working as hard to add drop boxes and take other steps to make it harder for Republicans to win? Is he really that intimidated by Stacey Abrams? Well, let's leave out Stacey Abrams for, for a moment. There, here you have Newt Gingrich once again, like so many Republicans saying that quiet part out loud where it's, it's really becoming grain now on the right, that anything that makes it easier to vote somehow makes it harder for Republicans to win, which is a remarkable admission on their part, a remarkable mindset that Raffensperger is not making it easier to vote because of, say, hey, democracy, uh, you know, proving the access to the ballot box, that it's simply making it harder for Republicans to win because the more people who vote, the less likely it is that Republicans will be elected. Meanwhile. You know, and you couple that with the argument that Wisconsin Supreme Court, uh, there was, I believe, one justice who pointed out that this recount effort is only into the in the predominantly African American parts of the state. So she's like, "Listen, this is an obvious attempt just to keep certain voters from the ballot box. That is, uh, Democrat leaning voters. This is a very old." Very, very old. It goes back to you know the the ratification of the original Constitution when only uh, wealthy white males could vote, and this is the battleground. and And as you as you point out, um, it, we saw this throughout pre election litigation. Uh, hundreds of lawsuits filed on the Republican side of the aisle trying to keep people from the ballot box, uh, and now we have we have shameless attempts to literally cancel millions of votes. Unprecedented. This is not how the voting rights, the, our system works. Uh, like I said, it's hard enough opening the tent to legitimate voters, and now we've got to keep the tent closed from the Lions after the election's over? I, I mean, it's really, it's, it's stunning, Charlie. Well, but going ahead, just assuming that none of this is going to affect the 2020 election, and so let's put that in the rearview mirror, it seems um, very, very likely now that Republican legislators all around the country are going to use this myth of the stolen election and of the fraud that they were never able to prove as an excuse to tighten up on access to the ballot box, that this kind of stuff, the new Gingrich, you know, uh, making it harder to have the drop boxes, making, uh, you know, tougher ID laws, making it uh, more difficult for people to obtain and to cast absentee votes. That seems an almost certainty. This seems to be something that the Republican Party has completely internalized, that they need to, that it is not a good thing to make it easy to vote. Absolutely. I mean, that was my Atlantic piece. This has been, you know, multiple steps back, I think, for voting rights litigation. It's no longer, you know, getting the tent more and more open. I think you're right. We're going to see a full on assault, um, more voter suppression efforts. And just let, let's remember uh, the Civil Rights Act or the Voting Rights Act that corresponded with the Civil Rights Act in the in the late 1960s. Lyndon Johnson signed it. That was one of the most pe successful pieces um, of legislation in the civil rights arena. And the Supreme Court basically gutted a critical provision in 2013. 
2013, which basically required states to get preclearance from the Department of Justice before they did these cute maneuvers to make it harder to vote, certain bad actor states. Um, when the Democrats took over the House, H.R. 1, their very first proposed bill, would have done what the Supreme Court told them to do, which is go back and, and fix that statute. I mean, that's a whole other topic. The Supreme Court probably overreached mm-hmm. in that moment. Um, but we do we need to see, on, on top of many things, uh, we need to see some federal intervention f- from Congress um, to to relevel the playing field because I think you're right, Charlie. We're gonna we're gonna go back. We're gonna go back a few decades, and it, it's really really sad because democracy is we the people, not we the Republicans or we the Democrats or we the politicians. Uh, politicians aren't your friends. It's your friends and neighbors that are voting in your community for what's best for you and your family. And, and it's really sad. One of our political parties is blatantly saying they don't care. I'm really interested in in your point that you made in the political article about uh, the the option for sanctioning lawyers who file frivolous lawsuits, and I'm particularly thinking of the Lynn Woods and the and the Sydney uh, the Sydney Powells, who once you know time and time again have made filings that were just ridiculous, slapped down, uh, erroneous, all of that stuff. Who has standing? to bring sanctions against. How does it happen mm-hmm. that, that a Sidney Powell is going to have to defend her law license going forward or a Rudy Giuliani or a Lynn Wood or any of these other hacks? Okay. So, um, I mean, the one possibility is sanctions through the bar, uh, and that would be sort of the putting the law license um, at risk. But but in terms of the courts itself, I'll just speak to the a federal court because every state has similar rules. The, the critical federal rule is called Rule 11, Federal Civil Procedure 11. Normally, it comes up on motion from one of the other parties. So the defendants in these cases, the states that are defending their elections, could go to the federal judges and say, um, please sanction Sidney Powell because she filed stuff that is factually and legally baseless. Under the federal rule, she would get 21 days to withdraw her case. And we've seen actually withdrawals. I don't think they were on Rule 11 motions, but so a bunch of these cases were actually withdrawn uh, shortly after they were filed. Um, but but So that's one route. You could move for sanctions. And the sanctions can be anywhere from, listen, reimburse me for my attorney's fees. It cost me hundreds of thousands yeah. of taxpayer dollars. Or it could be a fine to the court. Or it could be, Sidney Powell, you need to get authority, written authority, before you file another piece of garbage in this court. Or you know, here's a public reprimand. Or you need to go back to law, lawyering one-on-one school. Like, courts can do all kinds of things. The other option is federal courts can do it, what we call sua sponte. They can say, listen, you tell me why I shouldn't sanction you for this. And frankly, I don't know if it's because it's so political, Charlie. I I don't know if judges just don't want to, you know, have to, you know, have their own uh, professional uh, bodyguards now going forward if they if they take steps that are going to antagonize Trump's base. I really don't know. But that rule is there for a reason. It's there to to basically disincentivize uh, lawyers from abusing the courts for political reasons or harassment. Yeah, and 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 I think that this year has been a really good example of why we shouldn't just let bygones be bygones. Why that needs to be enforced, because otherwise, as you have pointed out, it will happen again and again. It will become a norm to simply just do you know file these harassing lawsuits, throw the spaghetti up against the wall after every single election. So I think it's I think it's important that uh, yeah. folks be held accountable. Well, and you know, this is very Trumpian. People ask me all the time as, you know, with a constitutional background and stuff, you know, can t- Trump do this? I mean, we talk about, we'll probably at some point, Charlie, talk about self-pardons if that's around the corner. Can he do it? That's the wrong question. The wrong question is, what are the consequences? Yeah. If there are no consequences, the answer to the first question is yes. 
So again, I mean, if there's no consequences to filing these frivolous lawsuits, but there's upsides in terms of duping the American public and the base into thinking there's there's there there, they will continue to be filed. The the courts have to draw a boundary. Likewise, Congress needs to draw boundaries with the presidency. Without accountability, without pushback, then the Constitution just is a piece of paper, and the belt and suspenders of the power of the presidency gets so big, and then that power gets handed off to the next president. So it's not a red versus blue thing. But unfortunately, you know, civic literacy is really, really lacking in our country. It's, it certainly is. Kim Whaley, thank you so much for joining us on this Monday morning podcast, uh, December 14th, the day that uh, Donald Trump officially is a one-term president. It's a big day. Happy, happy to talk to you on today in particular, Charlie. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.